Okay, uh, this morning I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love. Again, if you see charity in any of your translations, you can just, you could, you know, if God leads you to, you can cross it out because it's always agape and it's the love that God is. God is self-sacrificial love. So, and again, I, I'm thankful for the Wycliffe translation, but that's what was put in there. It doesn't belong there. And so, if I have not this self-sacrificial love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Those th- two things are completely out of tune. And so that's what we would be. So anywhere where I would see this love, God had me years ago, years and years ago, he had me put the name Jesus there. If I have not Jesus experientially, you know, and I have become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. In other words, someone that's not skilled has that brass or that cymbal in their hands, and all they do is make noise. And that's usually a pit of noise, and that's a pit of destruction in Psalm 40 and verse 2. Verse 2 says, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, would I really? <laughs> and all knowledge, do I really have all knowledge? And though I have all faith, and is it really? So that I could remove mountains. Well, what kind of mountains would they be? If I have not love... I am nothing. I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not love, Jesus, who is the manifestation in himself and of the Father, this self-sacrificial love, the prophet, or what it adds to me, is nothing. It's nothing. I liked uh, the prayer that Mike was sharing this uh, this morning and it's literally how God touched me this morning I was considering or he God had me consider his love for me and in doing so he had me again in my thoughts where were and I'll read these these scriptures here in Ephesians 3 I'll read that Ephesians chapter 3. And this is Ephesians 3 and verse 16. It says this, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit, the Holy Spirit, in the inner man, through, obviously through, your whole, through the spirit, your, your human spirit by the Holy Spirit, that Christ may dwell, settle down and be at home and make a home, a place to be, a place for you to be edified, your minds and emotions by this faith, this dependence, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able, may have that ability to comprehend with all saints. What a word that is, with all those that have been set apart by Christ and in Christ to the Father. What is the breadth and length and depth and height? And to know the love of Christ, 
which passes knowledge, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to the power, that power, of course, that Christ is in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 24, according to that, to the power that works in us, unto him glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all the ages of the ages, world, and really this is world, the earth without end. So we know the world, the earth won't end because that's where we're going to dwell with him. When heaven and earth become one, we see that in, in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 3. We also see it in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 26, right to the end of that chapter. And we also see it in, John, in Revelation 21, 1 and 2, the new Jerusalem coming down. And that's where God himself will be all in all in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Imagine that, God who is love in all will be all. What an amazing thing. So I was considering his love for me this morning. And there are certain things when we consider God, when we consider him, it, it, in this sense even, you know, it, for me at my age, again, in my growth, he, he just is beyond my understanding. Do you ever wonder? You can't figure things out or you, you want to put things together because, because you have a desire, really and truly, you have a desire to know God. And when you know God, we've always said this, is the most important thing about us is that God knows us. We would not know him if he hadn't known us first. We wouldn't even have a desire to know him had he not known us. And of course, the way he knew us was in the love of his son, of course, in Colossians 1 and verse 13. So, and he set us in his son in Ephesians 1, 6. He set us in the beloved, the only place that he could love us. Because that was the only place where his love, again, in the prayer that Mike was, was sharing in Zephaniah 3, verse 17, where is God resting? In his love. That exchange that, his, that they had in John 1, verse 1, that exchange that they had, and they still had, and they still have, and always have had, that affectionate, strong embrace, embracing love that nothing could disturb or distract. And so in my deep desire to understand God, sometimes I just, I just haven't got there yet. And God was explaining this to me this morning in such a beautiful way. And he was explaining it like this, that, Ed, my love for you passes your understanding because my love for you is limitless. You'll never come to the end of it. You'll never come to the end of it. You'll never come to the end of my infinite love for you. That's always been and will always be that brings to, to my mind in Revelations 1, 8, 11, and 17. Jesus, where God has always seen us and loved us, in that lamb in Revelations 13, 8, that was slain before the foundation of the earth, he always saw us in the Alpha and the Omega. 
When did God begin to love me in his son, who he always saw as a lamb? And when will it end? And so he, he told me again, his love for you, Ed, my love for you passes your understanding because my love for you is limitless. Nothing because of Christ. He removed any distance that would cause that infinite love to bypass you. Then, when I know it like this, and this is what he told me this morning. He said, Ed, in your life, and he was explaining to me Romans 8, verse 9. We have this flesh in us, but we're not of it in Christ. When I function in the flesh like I when I functioned in an unsaved uh, standing and state, all it was was lust, some form of lust. And this is what he explained to me in my growth, like I never saw it before until this morning. And he said to me, Ed, if you only knew, if you would only experience my love for you, you would never allow yourself again to be abused. He said, because that's what lust is. That's what the enemy designed it for. You know, back when he tempted Eve and he lied to her and told her, like he lies to us, that there's going to be, we can determine what good and evil is for ourselves and for others outside of our, our God, our creator. Like the, like the creature could do anything apart from the creator. Like God ever created a single being, angel or man, to function outside of him. The lie was because he so hated God. He so hated Christ. He so hated God's love through Christ for man that he does everything he can to abuse man because he hates God. He hates it. He hates us. Because God so loves us. And really, in one sense, it's not so much, again, in Galatians 5, 6, it's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. And really, the way I would say, it's really not what you do, it's really not what you don't do. It's just the faith that expresses itself through an infinite love. Infinite love. See, the enemy hates us because Christ is in us, period. And when I don't know that, when I don't know that, I will seek something outside of him. And I can only, I can only do that under the prince and power of the air in Ephesians 2, to function in some form of lust. You wouldn't believe the things that he... No wonder it says in 1 John 2, verse 15, love not the world. Okay, the outward evil expression of the world. Love not the world. But then it says, neither the things that are in the world. And those are the things that God wants to bless us with in time. He, he wants to bless us. But if we go for them apart from Christ, apart from his love, in other words, if I leave my first love in Revelation 2, verse 4, even those things that he used that were to be to my blessing, they, they come under the control of the enemy and he uses them to convince us I need these things to be happy. But all he's doing in that lie is he's abusing us. He knows, he knows lust. 
He knows it, but he doesn't know it like you and I do in the deliverance that we have in Christ. He knows it, but he's got no deliverance. And he hates the fact that we have it. Hates it. Hates us. Because he hates Christ in us. Furthermore, we wouldn't even have a trial. 1 Peter 1, 7 and 8, if it didn't have anything to do with God's glory through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when I understand this, and I, as I grow in it in 2 Peter 3 and verse 18, grow in this grace and this knowledge of this love that just pa- continually passes my understanding. It doesn't bypass me, but it just keeps on adding to me. In John 1 and verse 16, it's grace upon grace. Grace heaped up upon grace. That means love heaped up upon love. Never come to the end of it. Never come to the end of it. And if I know it, if I understand his love for me in this way, then I won't ever, again, as I grow, and I'm going to continue to grow, I won't use anything else outside of him that's not by his permission. That means even our bodies, no wonder it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And then that, in that way, you won't be conformed to this evil world. It'll keep you safe. It'll keep you safe. And you will only use those things. That he, you will only use those things for his glory, and then they'll be your blessing and the blessing of others. And so if you only knew, if I only know, if I only experience these continual continuous measures of his love for me. I'll never give place. I'll never leave my place of his first love and never give in to the place of lust, which is just abu- self-abuse. The, and even the angels, God's explaining to me, to me this morning, even the angels, he created them in the most beautiful way. But they left. They left it. They left it. And even their own beauty, they can't enjoy. They, they left their, you know, when even God created those angels, he created each one in their beauty, but separate from each other to, to manifest and reflect his glory. They left that. Now all they do is reflect the evil one. That's why so many times when you see in the Bible, and I used to make a difference about it. Yeah, there's one devil and there's many demons. Yeah, but all those demons reflect that one devil. That's all they do. No wonder it says, like this man had a devil. Yeah, that's right. It is correct. Very correct. But he does this for the Christian. He does it for the Christian because he comes in John 10, 10, 8, steal, kill, and destroy. How? Through lusts. Through these things. So that you live in self-abuse and he keeps you in bondage. The whole time telling you, convincing you it's good. When even those things aren't good, that were meant to bless us, apart from, le- apart from him and leaving our first love, what does it profit me? He wants to make us nothing. Not in God's eyes, because in Job 36, verse 7, he never removes his eye from the righteous. And Christ is our righteousness in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. But he wants us to live in these lust patterns. You see them in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. 
We see them in Matthew, the 15th chapter, in verses 16 to 20. You see them in Mark, the 7th chapter. All those lustful patterns, those lustful things. And all he wants to do is keep the Christian living in shame. And make that your whole life. So the other thing is, when I understand his love for me, and, and, it, and it passes me, it's okay. It's, it's great. That keeps me humble. But, when it, but it keeps me humble, but it keeps me in a place where he can add to me through grace his incredible love, his incredible love. And so in that sense, when I know his love and I experience it for me, I don't allow, that love doesn't allow anything to come in and abuse me. It doesn't. It doesn't. And you know what else I found out and, and going to learn? As, as just a Christian, uh, never mind as, as, a, as a pastor, teacher, and, and uh, really, just as a Christian towards myself and towards one another. It is not my mission to convince someone that we love them. It's just to love them. That's it. Because that's what God's doing in us individually. That's what he's doing. And when he's not, when he's not, some form of a lust pattern takes over. It just does. And what is lust? Remember writing these things down years ago and just look, and didn't have the understanding when I wrote the majority of those things. What is lust in the Christian? It's the interruption of the flow of the love of God. And just think of how many. They, they have a lust for knowledge so-called, but without an intimate relationship with Christ and without a loving Father. I can't tell you how many men that I know that I love that get caught up with this. Because that lust for, for knowledge, that lust for self-approbation, which is just really self-abuse, disguised, like I want to be recognized, they take the teaching and doctrine of Christ and separate it from the very experiential person of Christ in an intimate relationship and don't even have a loving Father. And all that they're left with and all that we would be left with is with a cold theological so-called teaching doctrine. When we function outside of his presence, in comes those lust patterns. And those lust patterns that haven't yet been fulfilled, and can they ever be? What is lust? It's insatiable, can never be filled. You can't have enough material things. You never will. I thought of so many people, so many people. Those lust patterns, they cause the mind to wander, even, even when we come to hear the word. Even when believers come to hear the word, they can't concentrate because <clears throat> there's a lust pattern and it's causing them to wander in their mind. And that's the enemy abusing them, keeping them in a place of abuse through these thoughts that they may think that are theirs but need to be cast down in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6, <clears throat> and get in the way of this intimate, loving relationship that God has designed 
in each believer's image for them to experience. And so we begin to function outside. And, and, and again, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them who are what? Lost. You know how many Christians get lost because of what the enemies convince them of what fellowship is? Fellowship. And of course, God, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them at lo- that are lost. And can we get lost in a heartbeat? We can. And the minute we leave our first love, in Revelations 2 and verse 4, another authority comes in. Who do you suppose that would be? Through these lust patterns. He's not our, he's, he's certainly, the enemy's certainly not our father in any sense, in our position. But how about the experience? Does he want to daddy us with his lies? His convincing us that we need these certain things. That we need certain things to be happy. We need certain things from others. When my God has already supplied all our need in Christ, according to his limitless riches and glory by Christ Jesus, in Philippians 4 and verse 19, no wonder the enemy convinces us we can't do certain things because when we function outside of that intimate love, can I do all things through Christ in Philippians 4 and verse 13 when, when, he, when I don't experience an intimate relationship and the flow of love? No, I can't. can't do it. I can't do it. And so we begin to wander. We, we begin to wander. And then in comes the law. If you do, if you do, I'm going to convince you that you can do it. You can take the law. And now you can do something for God apart from Christ. Apart from the cross. You know, we would never have a Christ without a cross. That's what it means. Did God ever see his son in that intimate embrace in John 1 verse 1? Did he ever see him apart from being a lamb? What is a lamb? It's innocent. And it's a sacrificial lamb. And would there ever be a sacrificial lamb without a cross? Would there ever be any grace and truth without one? To God and for us. It just would never be. It would never be that way. And so thank God, though, thank God that we do, we can, in the intimacy of this love relationship in Christ, have a godly father godly relationship being in Christ and that's the book of Ephesians especially those first three chapters in Christ and and that obviously still has to be by the power of the Holy Spirit you see we can't do anything without him we can't do anything without God the Father God the Son God the Holy Spirit we can do not one single thing And boy, does God have to convince us of this. See, the lie in Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 1, the enemy's very subtle in his lies, very disguised. That means he knows he disguises it. He'll disguise it, his lie, with a little bit of truth (laughs) and say that God is withholding something from you. He convinces you. Now you have to go out and do it. 
You have to do it. You have to prove it. The lie is, from the enemy, is that, that God wants something from you. He desires something from you. And by you being obedient, you would lose out. <laughs> what a liar. God doesn't want any, something from us. He wants us. He doesn't want something from us. He wants us. And his love, who he is through his son, has done everything to do that. He's completed it. You know, when man ends, when we end in the flesh and in the lust, God begins in what is and has always been in himself. And what is that? His deep love for each of us. His deep love for each of us. And what a beautiful thing that is. Again, again, what is lust? It's the interruption of the flow of the love of God. That's what he does. That's what the enemy desires to do. Let me read Proverbs 29. And I'll read that in Proverbs 29. The fear of man brings a what? A snare, a gin, a trap. But whoso puts his trust in the Lord, and who is the Lord? God is love. Again, see where it says Lord there? We'll be safe, we'll be put on high, we'll be kept secure. You see, Lord, again, we don't make him Lord any more than we make him love. <laughs> he is that. He's always been that. And of course, in terms of humanity, that's when Christ put on humanity, and then he still who was Lord in his deity, became Lord in his humanity of a whole new race of individuals, you and I in Christ. But you see, the fear of man brings a snare. It brings this snare. And the fact of the matter is, we see this in 1 John 4. And let's, let's see what 1 John 4 says here. In 1 John 4, verse 16, it says, And we know... And have believed the love that God has to us. Now, you know the enemy. He's trying to convince us the opposite, isn't he? How does he keep the love of God flowing in an intimate relationship with him? Some form of lust. That's how he does it. You get occupied with it. Think of what we get occupied with. The love that God has to us. God is love. That's why love isn't God. God is love. And he that dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. Now herein is our love made complete that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Why? Because there isn't any for us. Because as he is Christ, so are we in this world right now. And is there any fear in love? Do you know what he uses the, the lust for? To keep us fearing it. If we don't get enough, we're not going to be happy. Something's going to happen. And really, what is that? Not trusting in God's intimate love for us, I have to fill it with something else. He created man in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11. It says he put eternity in the heart of man. That means God created man with a big hole in him, in each of us. And he Christ, God, through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, must fill that hole, or else we will put something else there. 
and it, we will never, ever, ever be satisfied. There is no fear in love, but the completion of love and his love for each of us casts out fear because fear has what? Cholesis, torment, abuse. Abuse. And just like when you're loved by God, you're not trying to convince others to love God or to convince them to love you. You just love them. But just like when you live in a lust pattern or I do, and we live in abuse, we will abuse. We'll do it. Because fear has torment. He that fears doesn't experience what God and his love has so completed about them in their own particular image. Now, we love. We love him. Look at where it says, because. I didn't underline B-E. I just underlined cause. We love him. Cause. Because he first loved us. He's the cause. And when I'm obedient, I function in the effect of that love. But it doesn't stop there. It goes right back to him. And don't you think he doesn't, don't you think that you love your child and that child in that love that you love them with the co- would love you back with and you would have this deep, intimate relationship with them? Wouldn't that be, and that would be the desire of any parent, and God has put that in those that he's created. He's put that in us. Fact of the matter is, in his love for us, if Christ does not possess us, then the pride and arrogance of lust will. We're either going to be possessed by Christ, by his intimate love for us, or something else will possess us. Believe me. We, the enemy, may think that, and teach us that and through a lie, that father of all lies, in John 8, 44, that we need this certain thing. So wander, go out from his presence, because in his presence there's the fullness of joy, and convince, in Psalm 16, 11, and convince us that through this wandering, through this lust pattern, hasn't been yet fulfilled. Look at the lie that he did to the prodigal. He got him out of the house. What did he end up in? That's lust. That's the lie. That's the complete lie. You know why he wants to get us out of God's presence? Because he wants to abuse us because he knows how much God loves us. He just does. And get us, get occupied with all kinds of doctrine and knowledge about Christ, but don't experience him at all. And live lost, lost, like a little boy in the woods can't find his way home to the Father's heart. Those things, those things, we don't attach ourselves to those things. The enemy attaches those things to us. Those are the things that keep us in bondage, a slave to sin, and keep us a slave to him. In John 8, verse 34, we become slaves instead of being captured and and just our wills captured in Ephesians 3, 1 and Ephesians 4, 1, to be captured and to walk now through having that beautiful yoke in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, keeping us close to him and walk as children that are absolutely loved. No matter what, he loves us. 
But you know another reason why he keeps the unsaved from li- and living in these lust patterns and to keep them from unsaved. I'm going to tell you how he does this because God told me it's the only way I know. <laughs> and I'm, I don't know it like I should know it, but I'm going to grow in it and I'm going to do it, have the privilege to do it with others. And just like for the Christian too, but especially for the unsaved and for the Christian, what is lust? Why does he want us to live in lust? Why? Because he wants to deaden the retributive justice of God, his wrath for the unsaved. Because, listen, it's either love, justice fulfilled in Christ, or outside of that, in John 3, verse 36, it's wrath. It's wrath. He wants to deaden that. And for us in Christ... God, won't, God, because he loves us, doesn't allow that. That's where if our own backsliding in Jeremiah 2, verse 19, doesn't correct us, then he begins the chastisement in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. And Hebrews, the 12th chapter, those 29 verses, you can see, there he begins that chastisement. And sometimes it can, it'll get very intense scourging. And then obviously, in his mercy... Not in punishment. He takes certain believers home. I've heard literally men that I know, have had relationships with, tell me, even express it on their deathbeds. I know God's taken me home early because, because of these things. And it was love, and it's only love for the believer that does that. But for those that are not born again, it is wrath. And it abides. That's why hell doesn't disappear. It just goes into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire doesn't disappear. And that's why those, that's why we don't teach universalism. Because you can never separate God's love from his justice, and you can't separate it if, if, the, if they're unsafe from wrath. It abides. John 3, verse 36 solves the whole thing. And there's no, and in both cases, it solves universalism and annihilationism. John 3, verse 36. Very simple. Very, very simple. But we have this retributive justice of God. And what is it? It's the requital according to merits or deserts, but especially for evil. Something given or inflicted in such requital. Not for us in Christ. But don't you think the enemy doesn't have that? He has hates the unsaved. That's why he deceives them in Revelations 12 and verse 9, that this earth is it for them, and there's nothing beyond the grave. A lot of Christians, unfortunately, unfortunately for any of us that live that way, it's very unfortunate. Like there's nothing beyond, everything about us is time. When the fact of the matter is, we have eternal life. (laughs) In 1 John 5, 11, and John 17, uh, 2 and verse 3. But for us, we have at the Bema seat, which is brought out in 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15, in Romans 14, 10 through 12, and in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, we do have that retributive, uh, that retribution of those rewards given to us because it was the work of Christ that we submitted to in our own individuality and then we're rewarded for it. Isn't that amazing? 
here, this is for you. I've done it. Receive it so you can function. And, and when you do, I'll reward you. <laughs> what more could he do? Tell me what more could he do? But just like there's, like at the Bema seat for us, there is no terror or wrath there, by the way. There isn't. There's a separation between 2 Corinthians 5.10 and 5.11. There's no terror for us because it's been dealt with. But we see what he did to consume even what we functioned in in the flesh. That goes away. That's burnt up. That's the retributive wrath and justice of God that consumed it on our behalf. Boy, so serious, so serious, so serious. So sins then, sins not dealt with us or confessed by Christ in 1 John 1, 9, in God's eternal presence, how do we live? We live in fear. We just live in fear all day long. And he abuses us, the enemy. He abuses us. But we have in Christ the fulfillment of God's love and justice. His very nature, character, and essence, which are inseparable, we have them in Christ. We, again, we... God had his post this morning. We are nothing in ourselves. We have everything in Christ. Everything. We have every single thing. And notice this, even even the prodigal. He convinced the prodigal like he convinces Christians. And I and I don't and I think, and this is why we do need to be patient with teaching and when people, Christians, function in error. When they do, we, we, uh, we're not trying to convince them. We're just to love them. Preach the truth, yes. Yes, defend it by speaking it in love in Ephesians 4 and verse 15, in Jude 3 and verse 4. That's how we contend. It's always in love. Or else it's not speaking the truth in love. And then there's no skill and gentleness to impart in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 24. But he convinced the prodigal. He convinced the prodigal to leave the father's house. He was a son. In that sense, he was born again. The father had given him life, but he left the father's house because the whole time he was in there, he never knew the father. Why? Why did he not know him? Why did he not know him? Because he was living in what? What was he living in? Some form of lust. Some form of lust. Somehow, somehow, even in the father's house, he didn't trust the father to continue to supply him. So the enemy convinced him like he did Eve, you have to do something about it and you can do it without him. Just so he could abuse those who were made in his image. Oh, how he hates it. He hates it. Can you imagine being these angels And then hearing that God would create a whole race out of dust. They would fail, but as many as would believe him, that Christ would put on humanity and win them to himself and reverse the whole creative order. There there were a third that didn't like to hear that because they heard it from the first one. Two-thirds did. And you see them 
in Isaiah the sixth chapter, and you see them in, in Revelations the fourth chapter. The seraphim in the sixth of Isaiah, and the cherubim in the four, cherubim in the fourth of Revelations. And those are the two third that never fell. They aren't the third where in in Revelations 12 and verse 4, the dragon's tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. That was the revolt that happened in the intrinsic evil in the enemy in Isaiah 14, 12 to 15 that became expressed through disobedience in, in Ezekiel 28 and verse 15. He was, he was perfect, complete in all his ways till iniquity was found in him. The iniquity that he said no was this, and this is the definition of sin, lust, and abuse, self-abuse. It's my will, not your will, God. And do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 26, uh, 39 and 42? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He came to fulfill what you and I could never do. In John 4 and verse 34, his very sustenance was to do his will and to finish the work. That's brought out beautifully in the 10th chapter of, of, the, uh, of, of the epistle to, to the Hebrews, especially in those first 14 verses. And then the result, if we don't function in them, when we don't, and those aren't unsaved Hebrew Christians in the 10th chapter any more than they are in the 6th chapter, when we understand that those were born again, but they were going right back to trying to do, and all, the only way they could do it when they left Christ was go back to the law. The law brings out the lust patterns that are completely insatiable based upon Romans, the seventh chapter, and verses 12, 13, and 14, and keeping in bondage those that function that way. That's what unlocks Hebrews 6 in Hebrews the 10th chapter. They were born again Christians, Hebrew Christians, but Christians, they left their Jewishness and became in Christ, and then they were going back to it again. That's like a Christian. Again, like the prodigal, he convinces him. He convinces him. You see, in, in Luke 15, 12, Luke 15, 11, a certain man had two sons. Verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of the goods that are, that are supposed to be mine. And father didn't have to give them to him. He was out of place, even what he was requesting, because the elder should have got it first, and of course that's what caused him to be very angry, because he felt like he had earned them. <laughs> the other didn't. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that are going to fall to me, that are mine, as an inheritance. And he divided unto him that living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together. See, he hadn't left yet. Gathered all together and took his journey into what? A far country. What's the far country for us? It's those lust patterns that cause us to wander in the world system and look for fulfillment there. And so he took his journey into a far country. You can do that in our thought life, by the way. Read Matthew 5, 22 to 28. Because that's where sin starts, in the mind, in the will. And sin is in the will, just like love is. It's a choice in both cases. And he took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. He went into a far country. 
He was already in that far country before he, crest, he crossed the threshold of his father's house. Why? Because in thought, at home, in his father's house, he was living. Not trusting his father, but living in some form of a lust pattern that he felt needed to be fulfilled where it wasn't being fulfilled in the father's house. That's why he keeps believers from coming Believers from coming to hear the word. That's why he keeps them from coming to the local assembly. That's why. And I, I said it yesterday, honestly, and I didn't say it to condemn or accuse. I'm growing in it. I, how, I don't know. How do Christians get by on feasting on Christ just twice a week, maybe? Once or twice a week. Coming to hear the word once or twice a week. How, how do they do it? They don't. They have to go to a far country. When you're not in your proper place, which is at his feet, see Luke 10, 38 to 42, you're either at his feet receiving or you're like Martha in a far country kitchen serving, trying to serve God, but all you get out of it is irritation and anger towards Christ, towards God. How do Christians do it? Well, the enemy convinces them that they need certain things. Seek you first all these things about yourself. Then when you have time, add Christ to it. Add the local assembly. We made this clear yesterday too, by the way. Jesus said, he said it in the 12th chapter of Matthew 46 to verse 50. And he said it in, in all three synoptic gospels. In Luke 8, he said it in Mark 4, in Mark 3, in Mark the third chapter. Who are my, who is my mother and my brethren, who are my true family members, not natural family, they that hear the word of God and do it. That's who your family and friends are. Who do you spend time with? Who are your friends? Who do you spend time with? Your spiritual family. And if they happen to be your natural family, that are spiritual. And even if they're not, even if they're your natural family and they're born again and they're not fellowshipping, you think you should spend time with them. Well, we're going to wrap it up here. We've got four minutes. In Luke 15, verse 14, this is the prodigal. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, in that land, and he began to be in want. Now look what happens. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, that world system. And he sent him, when he did that, he sent him in his fields to feed his swine. What a friend, huh? That's a friend? That's family? To feed swine. What was he doing? The swine is our fleshly nature. Matthew 7, 6. Cast not your pearls before swine. Don't cast that. And the pearl there is that pearl of great price. You see that in Matthew 13. That's Christ himself through his suffering what he's given us in a proper image. And you cast it before someone else's fleshly swine nature. And as a Christian, you call that fellowship. Nonsense for any of us. A citizen of that country and he sent him into few, and that's a Christian's fellowshipping. They think fellowshipping in the flesh and all they're doing is feeding each other swine nature. And he would fain, 
faint, as I will get into these, these things on Friday, and he would fain have filled his belly with the husks. Look at what he gets us to settle for. The husks that the swine did eat, and, get, and no man gave him what only God has given him through Christ. No man can give you that. No man can. Thank God that we have this love. And thank God that when we function in his love, there's no shame. He's not ashamed in Hebrews 2.11 to call us brethren. Because in Hebrews 2.10, what did he not do? To fulfill that love that he had for us, from his Father, and for him, himself, and for his love for us. What would he not do? And let me ask you, what would we not do for one another? Well, thank you, Lord, for your love. And as we grow in you, you become so real to us in our experience, so intimate to us. And you can do that in fellowship through one another as we submit in Ephesians 5, 21 to one another. And then Christ begins to be formed in us. No shame in 2 Timothy 1.11. And what keeps that shame out those lust patterns, that abuse of the enemy is having Christ formed in us in an intimate relationship in 1.13 of 2 Timothy. So Father, thank you so much for your love that will never come to the end of in Jesus' name. Amen.